You're listening to Pastor Jesse Miller of City Lights Church. Mark chapter 10, verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such, to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now, this scripture can be very confusing at times, but I want to look at something that's a little bit bigger than the actual context of these verses. I want to look at something, what I see in in a greater scheme in the way the church operates and the way we as people operate. And we see that displayed here in the disciples. We see children come to Christ and somebody's bringing these children to them so that he can lay hands on them and bless them. And the disciples immediately rebuke them. And I wonder, why do they rebuke these kids from him? Why, why do they rebu- say, say that that shouldn't happen? Why do they try to keep his blessing off of these kids? And I began to look at, in my own life, how we as people and a civilization, how we operate under the same principles. And I, w- I want to look at this. I remember back when I was in third grade, I had a best friend. Um, my only friend, because I went to a small private school and there was two kids in the class, so naturally he was my best friend. Um, yeah, that was limited then. So anyway, my best friend, his name was Teddy and I haven't seen Teddy since fourth grade because I went to a different school with more kids and more options for friendships, I guess. Um, we had like 12 in that class. So I'm kidding. Kind of. But I remember Teddy and I were like best friends, and we'd hang out all the time, out inside of school, outside of school. I'd go over to his house, and we'd play. But my mom, every time the word Teddy is brought up, she would always remind me of this one time that Teddy had nice brand new coloring pencils. Brand new, sharp. You guys know what I'm talking about. Some of you guys are like me, like, you just love sharpening pencils. You, you, they all have to be perfect. That dull pencil drives you nuts. Teddy had brand new coloring pencils. This is a big deal to a third grader, okay? This is, this is nice stuff. Teddy would not let me use his coloring pencils because they were brand new. This brand new coloring pencil should only be used by Teddy. I don't remember this very well, but my mom remembers this. She's always, whenever the name Teddy is brought up, do you remember he would never share his coloring pencils? I'm thinking, Mom, I don't really remember that anymore. Do you remember he wouldn't let you play with his Lincoln Logs? I'm like, Mom, I don't really remember that anymore. But there's something in us that when we have something that we value, we hold it with a firm grip. Does that make sense? If you have something, you hold it tight, and you don't typically like to share. This is made evident to me and my wife on a daily basis by my children. I have two girls, five and three. It can be the silliest thing ever, and they are somehow fighting over it. You know, if it's an empty um, paper towel roll, somehow that turns into an argument where one of them gets punched. I don't know how. But one of them has possession of the holy paper towel roll. And the other one wants it. And that they hold on to it with a tight grip. There's this instinct in us to naturally, like when we own something, when we have something, we don't want to give it away. And as I look at this scripture here, the disciples have something. They have this Christ. They have the, the promised, anointed Messiah, the one that they think is going to change everything. And people are bringing him up, bringing their children up so that he can put a blessing on them. He can give them a blessing. 
I see two main reasons why the, why the disciples respond this way by rebuking the children. And one the, first one, the first part of this reason, it's one that goes together. But there's a reserved blessing for the worthy. That's, that's the whole thing right there. And I want to break that down. They, they look at this and say, Jesus, the Messiah, has a blessing. He has something of value that's reserved for the worthy. For those who would be worthy of that blessing. See, the first thing I want to look at, though, is this idea that when we look to God, there's a reserved blessing. There's something that's, that God has an amount of that we want a part of. Does that make sense? We want something from him. And we naturally think that there's a limit to it. There's a, a reserved amount of that thing. We like to protect these things. And when we think about God's resources and God's blessings, the first one, the first natural resource or blessing that kind of pops in my mind, maybe yours as well, is the idea of love. And Teddy's pencils don't have the same kind of value and substance of, that God's blessing and love does. Let me explain. God's love is not something that he has. God does not have love for us. God is love. God created this thing of love so that he could pour love on us so that we could have the capacity to love to share his love to others. Does that make sense? God doesn't have or own an amount of love that he can give some to these little children, some to his disciples, and all of a sudden God's out of love. I ran out of my coloring pencils. God's not like confused. I don't ha- God created love. He has no, there's no end to it. We sang this morning about his love. We sang about it. We sing these songs about it. But yet somehow in our minds, when we receive God's love, we want to be the ones that receive his love. We don't, want, we don't necessarily want everybody to receive his love because I want to possess something of Christ. I want to possess this part of it. And his disciples are thinking this way. I want to have this. I want, there's a blessing that he's giving out that shouldn't be given to the children. It should be reserved. It should be limited. So we, we think of God in these limited terms because we're natural flesh material. And we've been speaking over the last month how we're not just flesh, but there's a spiritual realm that God's dwelling inside of us. But the spiritual realm operates outside of the natural laws sometimes. God's love does not operate in a natural-like law. We say, okay, that's, that's nice, you know, love, peace, those things. Okay, there's an abundance to it that God can keep giving forever and ever because it's not a material God doesn't operate in that way with material things either. If God wants to bless you with something, there's not like a limit of his resources here in the physical material world. God has created natural laws on the earth, but God doesn't, isn't bound to those laws. He's not, he is not confined to the natural laws. Well, you say, what do you mean? Jesus looks at, you know, we see in the story, the, the two loaves, or the five loaves and the two fishes, Five loaves and two fishes in the natural equals five loaves and two fishes. When Jesus gets a hold of it, he's not bound to his law. He's not bound to the way it looks. Next thing you know, he's filling baskets and feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. See, this is a God that doesn't have a limited amount of resources or a limited amount of blessings, a limited amount of peace, a limited amount of love that operates on the same system that ours does. Does this make sense? There's not, a res- there's not a reservoir of God's ability or of God's power or of God's love or joy or peace or even material things. There's not some kind of warehouse that once it's c- emptied of, he's run out of. I want to look at the second thing here. A, reser- a reserved blessing for the worthy. 
See, in that culture, the disciples were thinking, here comes the Messiah, the one who's going to create a physical, literal kingdom. And once again, they're thinking in the literal realm. They're thinking in their normal standards of operation here. So when a child comes up and receives a blessing from him, one, there's a blessing that's being given, and two, the child's not worthy of a blessing because he's not a ruler. He's not somebody of importance. A king doesn't come in the natural scheme of things, doesn't come and try to win a bunch of children. Does that make sense? A king would come and establish his reign among the important, the high in society, the high and the elite, those of importance. I love that last week, Jared preached, he preached that prophecy that in the last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men will have visions. He talks about the slaves being a part of this, that in the last days, there's no like, okay, you're a slave, you can't be a part of this because we're only giving to the masters. Okay, you're a man, you can have this, but a woman can't. In that society, there was no like level playing field for men and women. Children were definitely not on that playing field. Slaves were definitely not on that playing field. And here he says, I'm going to pour it out on all flesh. Doesn't matter race, doesn't matter age, doesn't matter ability, doesn't matter income level, doesn't matter about intelligence. None of those things matter. Jesus understands that this is what his kingdom looks like. That I'm pouring what I have, which is abundant and never-ending on all people. Everyone. So his disciples were thinking in terms of this earthly kingdom and earthly rules and using earthly prejudices about who's worthy to get the Christ time and blessing. They're thinking, here's the Messiah, here's the creator, the one who's going to come and fix everything, and he's spending his time with kids. Jesus, you have more important things to do than that. You have have better things to do than, than put your hand and bless little children. We don't need to do that. Let's find somebody important. This is what's going through their mind. See, Jesus breaks this way of thinking. Jesus completely comes in and changes this natural understanding of how blessing and society works. He changes it. He spends time with the children. He spends time with the outcasts. He spends time with prostitutes and tax collectors and the sick and the hurting. He spends his three years of ministry with them. He also spends it with the rich and the powerful. But he's not just with the rich or just with the broken. It's all flesh that Jesus is living with and pouring his blessing on. Somebody should get excited. Jared said last week, you're allowed to say amen. You're allowed to respond. You're, you're allowed to agree with me if you want to. It's, it's, it's allowed here at City Lights. You can do that. This is good news. He, he's not looking at the children saying they're young. They, ha- they don't get it yet. They don't understand this yet. The first person that he reveals himself to after he goes to the cross, after he's buried, is a woman. This is the most unlogical, is that the word, illogical, illogical? Look, he's, he's using me to speak today, and I can't even get the right words out. This doesn't make sense. Why would he reveal himself to a woman first and base everything off of her testimony? In that culture, you wouldn't have done it. But he's creating a new way of thinking, a new line of understanding. The father and the father's blessings, the father's love. He's making a new way, a new 
a new way of living. He's saying all flesh, even children, even children here. I want to I wanna make this clear, and I'm preaching this not just to you, but to myself as well. Our kids downstairs are not down there just so that they're being babysat while us adults do something spiritually important. If that's our way of thinking, then, then we're really misguided. Our children can come to him and receive him, receive his blessings, and live a spirit-filled life. Your children can live a spirit-filled life. Your children can prophesy. They can see the sick healed. They can speak to God, their creator. There's no age demographic that once you hit five or six or seven, all of a sudden now you're allowed to be entered into his presence. All of a sudden now you're allowed to worship. It doesn't work that way. You can worship him. You've got the spirit of God inside of you. You can respond. And I want to see us have a church filled with children who respond to the voice and the spirit of God in their lives. I want to see that. I want to see us have kids who understand that I can, I'm five years old and I can hear the voice of God. I can hear him speak. I can hear him tell me to pray for my friend at school. I can hear him say, just speak. I want to have kids that are led by the spirit. God doesn't have some kind of playing field that you reach this certain spot, this demographic, and all of a sudden his spirit can pour out. It's all flesh. Um, when I was a youth pastor, um, maybe some of you guys don't know what I'm talking about or have, have any kind of paradigm for this. Maybe you haven't experienced this before. I was a youth pastor, and um, I was pretty new to this youth group. I had went to a different church, and I was hired as the youth pastor. And um, we're at a youth conference, and there's thousands of preteens and teenagers everywhere. So for some of you, that's your worst nightmare. For me, at that time, it was great. I loved it. And... Uh, I had a group of like 20 teenagers and about four of them walked up to me because it was like between sessions in this conference and they walked up to me and they're like, Hey, that girl, did you see that girl over there? She's limping and she's got that crutch over there. I'm like, yeah. They're like, are we allowed to go pray for her? I'm thinking, first off, that's the most ridiculous question ever. Of course you're allowed to pray for her. There's, there's not some kind of thing that says, no, you're, te- you're teenagers. You're not allowed to pray for the sick. I love the fact that they came to me and said, we want to. We desire to go pray for her. And I watched them go pray for her and the girl break down in tears because she hadn't experienced that. She hadn't experienced other teenagers walk up to her and pray for her to get healed. I want to see where we're a church that doesn't have limits on who can receive Christ and who can receive his love, who can receive his grace. I want to see us be a church that really understands the spirit doesn't have a demographic. He just doesn't. See, they, they looked at these kids and thought they're not worthy. But somehow the disciples thought of themselves as being worthy. These, these disciples are ridiculous. Let me, let me just point out a few verses here. Actually, I'll get to that later. I'll get to that later. But they, for some reason, they thought the kids didn't deserve his blessing, but they did. See, if, he's, if he is our ultimate joy, and that's what we've been preaching, it's on the back of your bulletin, that our ultimate joy in life comes from him and experiencing him and understanding the word and living by the spirit. If our ultimate joy is in him and he never runs out, why would we stop trying to give that away to everybody around us? 
What would hold us back? If he's the only thing that matters, the only thing that gives joy, and it never ends, what's holding us back? What's stopping us from sharing that? And we'll look at Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. If you could turn there on the screen. If you could turn your screens to, there it is. 2 Timothy chapter 1, this is Paul, and he's in prison at this time. And he's writing to Timothy, and he says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endorse sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Verse 5, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of the evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. For I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which is, my, which is the Lord, the righteous judge, will await a award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to those also who have loved his appearing. See, Paul's a man who's drastically been changed, radically been changed by God and his grace. His entire life has been uprooted and transformed. He was one who persecuted the church, and now he's pushing everything to declare the gospel of who he is. The good news that was given to Paul, the thing that changed Paul's life completely, he's pouring himself out and doing everything he can to proclaim that to the world around him. See, this is, this is somebody who gets it, and the opposite of the disciples. The disciples here in what we saw in Mark is they don't get the kingdom. They think it's something that they've got to build with man-made logic, a man-made understanding. It's got to be reserved for those who are worthy. And Paul says, I've received this thing. I've received this, so I'm pouring it out. I love that he says in season and out of season. What this really translates to is when it's convenient and when it's not convenient. When it's convenient and not convenient. I'm declaring the gospel. Declare the gospel when it's inconvenient. I think a lot in my own personal life, I look at myself and I realize there are a lot of moments where it's really convenient for me to, to be a Christian, to be somebody who's proclaiming his good news, to tell somebody about God's love. Home groups is an easy time for me to share about Jesus. From this stage is a very easy time for me to share about Jesus. You're in the church. Hopefully you want to hear about Jesus when you've walked into the church. It's very convenient. But there are moments where it's really inconvenient. When I'm at my work, when I'm out grocery shopping and I'm angry, when people cut me off, uh, when some guy this morning on the way here blows his horn at me quickly. Um, The light didn't take that long to change, but uh, anyway... There are moments where it's really inconvenient. You guys know what I'm talking about. I don't have to build this case any longer. Where there's, It's just really inconvenient to declare the gospel. And he says in every season, inconvenient or not, we should preach this word. We should declare the gospel. See, what we do is we can really quickly make excuses for why we have received this ultimate joy and then we don't share it. We can make really good excuses too. I'm... I'm a pretty good excuse maker for not sharing the gospel or not praying for somebody. We can look at social statuses. We can look at pride. 
my own personal pride. Well, what if, what if I do this and I'm embarrassed? What if, you know, I pray for them to get healed? Or what if I tell them about Jesus or I feel this in my heart to share with them and they don't like it? What if at my work people start accusing me of being that Christian guy? What if, you know what I'm talking about. We can easily turn into this inward pride view of evangelism. I can't do that because it could look bad on me. We have self-doubt. Well, I'm not really that good of a person. I haven't been the best Christian all the time, so maybe I shouldn't say anything. I'll let a better Christian say that. Don't, don't lie. Half of you have probably thought that before. I definitely have. There's a better preacher. There's a better Christian in this, in this place. Let them share because uh, last week I said a few slang words, so I don't want to be that guy. You know what I'm talking about? When we value him as our ultimate joy, the best thing in the world, when he really is the only thing that we live for, there's not much room for pride. There's not much room for excuses. I know this might come across hard this morning, but I'm trying to be real with you. This is what I felt in my heart to share with you. There's no room for my, myself to make an excuse of what if I'm wrong? Because in that moment, what I essentially say is, I'd rather be right than share the ultimate source of life with this person. I'd rather make myself and my personal pride, my, comfortable, my comfortability, I'd rather have that be my essential source of joy and strength than him being my source of joy that just doesn't care what I look like as long as he's glorified and that good news is given to somebody else. See, he takes all of our rationalization and he says it's not about that. When I realize that he is the only thing that matters, my rationalization, my understanding of what's best for Jesse doesn't add up. It doesn't work. It doesn't hold any ground. I said I'd get back to the disciples, and I want to, I want to get back to the disciples. Mark chapter 8, we see this. Uh, I just want to read this verse real quick. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. See, Jesus operates in this weird paradox where it doesn't quite make sense with our understanding. So he says that in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 9, look at this, the very next chapter, starting in verse 34. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued, this is the disciples, they were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. The disciples are arguing with each other, and when Jesus asked them, hey, what are you, what are you guys talking about? They, they get real quiet all of a sudden. Uh, nothing, nothing at all, Jesus They were arguing about who was the greatest. And he sat down, verse 35, and he called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. This natural human logic, he flips it on his head. If you want to be the first, you got to be the last. The way my kingdom works is you pour yourself out and I pour myself back into you. If you want to be the first, you got to be the last. You got to be the biggest servant of all, it says here. Verse 36, and he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Mark 9, they're arguing about attaining the greatness stat- status with Jesus. He, said, he brings the child up. He says, you've got to receive him if you want to receive me. And if you want to receive me, that's how you receive the Father. The very, next chi- the very next chapter, they're rebuking the children from coming. They're still not getting it. 
This, this whole way of being first and last and living, keeping your life and losing your life, it's not making sense to them. Jesus comes in and he offers a whole new way of living. That ultimate, well, there goes my pen. That ultimate joy and satisfaction is found in him. And if you want to really receive life, you've got to be able to give this thing freely. Paul says, this is why Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4 says in verse, verse uh, 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul's writing this while in prison, right before he's about to be executed, before he's martyred. He can say in that moment, the only thing that matters is I can lose my life so that I can really live my life. I can lose everything that I've worked for, that I've built up, so that I can really have true life in him. This goes against the natural way of thinking. I wonder, can we sometimes, can we see the big picture that it's not about the way that I establish myself or my pride or the things that are happening now, the things that are happening in this moment in our lives? Can we begin to see beyond that? Can we see that God's, the ultimate joy and satisfaction found in Christ aren't based on my circumstances of this week or my job status or my financial status or my friendships? It's not based in that. It's based in something bigger and better, and it's based in his love and his grace for me. It's based in my life, in the Holy Spirit, in the presence of the Spirit, that I get to be the dwelling place for God. That's what my joy and satisfaction has to be based out of. There are moments where I can lose sight of that. Actually, I'd say there's a lot more moments where I lose sight of that than where I actually have it, where I understand it. Can I give you two quick personal examples? This, this last week, I felt like I was in the zone. I was in the uh, understanding the bigger picture zone. And I'm having a conversation with Jimmy in a public place about a situation. And I'm just talking to him about how I would handle the situation. And I was thinking, like, I was thinking biblically. I was thinking it's bigger than just the way I feel right now. It's bigger than the way you feel right now. It's a lot more to it. And this person who's in this public place behind us is like, she just stopped. And she's like, hey, are you a pastor? Which at that moment, I was like, thinking, what did I just say? Did I say anything bad? Did I talk about anybody? Um, what did I say? But I said, yeah, I am. And she's like, oh, okay. And it began a conversation. Later, Jimmy's like, the things that you were saying sounded very pastoral. And so in that moment, I'm like, all right. I was getting it. I was in the zone. I was in, I was thinking bigger than what was happening in that moment. Does that make sense? There are moments where I can think like that. The other hand of that, I remember back, this is, this is so ridiculous, I was in Bible college and I was coming home from, a, it was the weekend, and I'm pulling into my driveway, and our driveway is like a, a gravel driveway that's shared by our neighbor. And our neighbor and her family had kind of driven my family nuts for a very long time, let's just say that. But she also drove for her job a massive school bus. And my driveway is very limited in parking spaces. And usually she would park on her side, but so close that I would be, barely be able to crawl out my door if I parked beside her in our driveway. Make sense? So it's a little bit of a frustration brewing inside of me. I pull in one day and I see not one bus, but two massive buses. And it's sitting in my spot completely. And I'm freaking out in my car behind this bus. 
And the, I didn't realize there was a lady inside the bus. She gets out of the bus, and she's like, I don't know where to put this. I'm thinking, this isn't my neighbor. Who is this lady? She's just some random lady driving a bus into my spot. And she's like, I don't know where to park, park this. You don't have to yell at me. And like, apparently, I, well, I, not apparently, I, I had in my car been yelling, and I used slang terms that starts with F. It wasn't the actual word, right? But it looks like the word to somebody who can't hear me. And she gets out, and she's like, you don't have to yell the F word at me. And I'm like, I didn't say that. I'm a pastor. And then I thought, why did I just say that? Why? Why did I tell her when she thinks I was cursing at her and I was clearly angry that I'm a pastor? That was dumb. There are moments where I can only see the immediate right now, and I can just explode in rage. I get so angry because I'm not thinking bigger. That moment I had to step back when she just confronted me on it and realized I didn't need to. I didn't understand the situation. I didn't think bigger. I didn't understand how I could help her. Instead, I reacted to what hurt me. Does that make sense? What's mine? I want that parking spot. That's my spot. This self-entitlement, this thing that hangs on to Jesse, the thing that, that I desire. And I wasn't looking at the bigger picture, that God's way bigger than this I could have done something different in that moment. I know that's a kind of a silly one, but we've all had moments like that where we respond in the natural. We don't look at the big picture. See, this, his spirit and his love, it doesn't have any end to the resources. It doesn't have any limits on his resources. There's no, there's no barriers on it. Thinking back at the, right now at the way that our church operates, you know, I said earlier this morning about how Jared will be my pastor. The way City Lights is run, we have the pastor of the church, we have a, a team of elders that we're establishing, and we have over us is what we call an apostolic oversight team, which is pastors who have really accomplished a lot. We're, we can be proud to have these men as our pastors who are over us. And some of them you've met, they've been in and out of here and they've preached before. But you know what's exciting to me that this isn't a team of like society's elite by natural standards. These are guys who are drug addicts, alcoholics, victims of really devastating childhoods, lived horrible lives until God's grace knew no bounds, didn't have any kind of regulation on who he was going to pour his love out on and just completely captured them. And from that moment, they were able to change the way they live and the people around them for the gospel. We get to experience that. You and I get to experience that. And my question this morning is that we can begin to see bigger than the bigger picture. That we can be like Paul and say, I'm willing to be poured out like an offering for the gospel. Because even when we're being poured out, his love, like I said at the beginning, knows no end. I look at the end of how he ends here, verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all, also to all who has loved his appearing. He's saying, I've given everything, not so that I can hold in and take in his presence, but that I get to experience it. And even when I die, there's still more of his goodness to come for me, but not just for me, for everybody who loves his appearance. This is a God that's bigger. His goodness, his blessing is bigger than what we can begin to understand and make limits to. It's big. 
This morning, what I, what I want to ask is if you don't know him as your ultimate joy, if he's not the Lord of your life, I'm saying this is a good moment to say, Christ, I want to experience this joy. Regardless of my background, regardless of my history, you get to experience this joy. And the other question is maybe you have experienced this joy. And my, my question is why are we not sharing it? Why are we being selfish with it? Why are we holding it with tight grips, saying this is a blessing that I get to receive and not those around me? Well, maybe because they've hurt me or they've, they've, they've caused me pain. The truth is, we cause people pain, and he still has loved us. He still has given us this gift. Let's not be like these disciples that look at the children or look at a different race, a different economic standing, a different social background, and say, God, let's not bless them. Just keep blessing me and establish your kingdom the way I want you to establish my kingdom, the way that I'm comfortable with, the way that I already have an understanding of. Let's begin to shift that this morning, if we could. If our worship team could come forward, I want to go into some worship here where we, f- we reflect on his love. This week coming up, as Jared's mentioned it, we have an opportunity. This is a very easy, convenient way for us to share his love with iHeart Scranton. And I want to encourage you, please get involved in that. We get to share his love to kids, really, and families. Hopefully the kids bring their families. They're not just a bunch of kids running around wild. Hopefully they bring some families. We get to share his love that there is a church in the city that has ultimate joy and satisfaction in Christ. And we get to share that. But I would encourage you beyond just I Heart Scranton and events like that, that you would in your heart recognize that it's not about me accumulating his love, accumulating his blessings, whether it's financial blessings or, or spiritual blessings. It's not about how much I can receive. It's about how much can I give out. It's how much can he live through me. That's what this is about. We get to worship him and we also get to be poured out for him. I hope this makes sense. I hope this grips somebody's heart because if we can get on mission with this, then it's not about how big of a house or an income that I can build up over the next 40 years of my life. It's how can I be poured out and experience the blessings. If we're not, how many ever heard of that guy who's like 87 years old and he's got like $4.3 million in the bank and he lives in a shack? I feel like in the same sense we do that with the spiritual blessings of God. That we receive his love, we receive his love, we receive his love, but then we never share with family or we never actually live in the abundance of his love. That's ridiculous. There's no limit to this. Let's share this thing. Let's expose this thing. Let the, I don't want the world to look at me and when I die and go to heaven, my soul's with him, but the whole world doesn't recognize that I was, I had ultimate joy. I had 100% satisfaction in him. I want my neighbors to know that I experienced joy that they could experience too. That's what I want. In a spiritual sense, I want them to see that I have a good house. Not, not in a material sense. I'm talking in a spiritual sense. I want them to be able to know that there's a good house for them too. Because there's enough to go around. There's enough blessing to go around. I hope this makes sense. Let's worship him this morning.
If you're struggling with any of those things, if you, if you don't know this joy that I'm talking about, you don't recognize that he's trying to pour his love on you, then please come talk to me. Come talk to Jared. We'll pray with you. We want to share that with you. But you also, if you just struggle with being able to recognize it's not about you, it's about him and portraying him, proclaiming him, then I encourage you, if you want prayer for that too, please grab one of us. But let's just spend some time focusing on him and his goodness this morning. Can we do that? Let's stand and worship.